interactive statistics of your game, <laughs> which this for some people, uh, Jesus asks in the four Gospels a total of 307 questions. He gets 183 questions thrown back at him, and he only answers three of them. So that idea of Jesus is the one with all the answers is actually quite misleading. Jesus is the one with all of the questions. And why questions? Well, like Pete said, questions are powerful. They um, they unlock things for us. I mean, who 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 like loves hanging out with people who just have all the answers to every question already in their head? You know, they know everything. They don't they don't have any questions. They just know it all. Those people are great, though. Um, <laughs> Jesus wasn't like that. He's interested in people. I like people who ask questions. I love students who ask questions um, because questions are intriguing and and exciting and even. Um, provocative and dangerous and scandalous questions disrupt the, the status quo, disrupt the patterns of thinking that we have. They open us up to, to new lines of inquiry, new ways of thinking and being. Whereas answers, you know, answers, a good answer is good, but often answers have a tendency to sort of slam a lid on a good question. Um, and a good question doesn't deserve that kind of treatment. Kids ask great questions. Got two kids, and they one of them in particular asks many questions, um, and I'm slowly learning to actually be better at listening to to Francis's questions, and actually not just respond with an answer because oftentimes he's not looking for an answer, he's looking for dialogue. Like, Dad, why can't we fly on birds? Or where does the wind come from? Or why do things fall? I could uh, immediately tell them about the theory of gravity, but I say, what, why do you think they fall? Um, so, so, so questions um, expose and open up all of the things that are brewing inside of us. And like I said, they're, they're central to Jesus' life, central to his teachings. And we, we'll find throughout this series that, that the questions that Jesus asks are not just ancient history questions. They're not just questions that are frozen in time, but they're in a way they're questions that are still with us today. They're questions that are hanging in the air, and more than just hanging there, they're questions that he is posing to us. They're questions that are for us. So we'll find that um, over the next coming weeks as we listen again to the questions that Jesus asked. Oh yeah, I don't know yet. The beginning of knowledge. So why Mark? Well, um, we're going to be limiting ourselves just to Mark. We're going to we're going to be disciplined to listen just to the one evangelist this this time through this series. And there are beautiful questions outside of Mark's gospel, beautiful beautiful questions. But um, we felt Mark was the right place for us as a church for uh, three reasons really. So the first reason is that uh, Mark's gospel, perhaps more than any others, really leverages questions to move move things along. Um, to to reveal Jesus' true identity. This process, this rhetorical process of questions is something that Mark relies on. And Mark is probably, I think he's the only evangelist to break the fourth wall, which is a drama term for when the, the actors are talking to each other and then one of them turns to the camera and, and speaks to the viewer. Mark does that. He has a characteristic phrase, let the reader understand. So Mark will, will be in the dialogue and then he'll turn to us as we're reading and say, pay attention. So, so Mark really involves us in his gospel like no one else. The second reason uh, we want to listen to Mark's story is that that scholars think it's the uh, it's probably Saint Peter's 
um, eyewitness testimony. Mark was probably um, capturing the message, the, the recollections of Peter. There's all kinds of reasons to believe that, um, all kinds of interesting Petrian perspectives in the, in the Gospel of Mark. And why do we love Peter? Well, because Peter tells it the way it is, not the way he wants it to be, not the way he wishes it was. Peter tells it like it is. Um, it's, so we see Jesus in a kind of raw and unvarnished sense. We see the disciples in a often embarrassing and um, um, yeah, uh, yeah, opened up, um, not airbrushed. Uh, the disciples are real people in the Gospel of Mark, and so is Jesus. He gets angry. He, you know, all of the raw human emotions are present in, in Mark's Gospel in a particular way. And that's what we want. That's what we want for our dialogue with Jesus. We want to bring reality. We want to bring ourselves to the questions. Um, Jesus is far too real to meet us anywhere except in reality. So let's let Peter be our guide this, through this series. And the third reason that we're sticking with Mark is that Mark's particularly under, interested in understanding Jesus as the suffering Messiah. Um, Mark wrote most likely after Peter was martyred, and he was writing to Peter's friends and his community who were going through persecution and he was writing to them in a sense to say all this suffering that you're going through it's not an aberration it's not something you've done wrong it's part of following the crucified messiah this is the pattern of discipleship so suffering is not a disaster it's something that forms us into the shape of jesus the cruciform shape of jesus that's mark's invitation to know jesus as the suffering king and to follow him. So as we experience each of us our own tough times as a, as a society in our own tough times, um, Mark offers us solace that this is not, um, the plan hasn't gone wrong, that there's something forming in us through this period. All to say, Mark reveals a portrait of Jesus that we can really relate to, a relatable Jesus and relatable people and relatable questions and a God who wants to relate to us. So, before I, I'm, I'm going to be taking us through Mark 2, but before we get there, just a very quick flyover Mark 1, because I think it helps us to clarify what's going on in this gospel. Um, so biblical scholars have suggested that, that the prologue to Mark's gospel is the key that unlocks the rest of the gospel. You can kind of get the, use the prologue, it's like the key that opens up each door. In Mark 1, verse 1, um, Mark lays all of his cards on the table right there at the very beginning. He says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, Son of God. So Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, the three identities that we all come to know Jesus through. And then there's that word good news, which, uh, or euangelion in Greek, which um, <clears throat> would have meant two things to Mark's readers, which sort of flies over our heads. The first thing that Evangelion or good news meant was, uh, or would have triggered in people's memory or thought, was the Roman imperial system. So whenever a new Caesar came into power, they would say, hey, good news, everybody, I'm in charge now. Um, the, so it was a particular word in a Roman context. Good news meant a new king is coming. And so there's that, and then there's the second point, which which I think the Jewish audience would have get understood. Um, the word good news or euangelion is also peppered throughout 
this particular part of Isaiah. It's not really found much in the Old Testament, but all of a sudden in Isaiah, it just starts bubbling up, this word. So Mark um, doesn't want his readers to miss the point. He, he starts quoting from Isaiah right at the beginning, Isaiah 40 in particular. Oh, sorry, I missed my slides, but yeah. I'm not gonna read all of that, but, um, but you see in the second column there, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. That's Evangelion. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him, and his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead them other sheep. So, so Mark's making it clear by, by referencing back to this Isaiah 40 passage that Jesus' arrival is not just good news in the kind of um, happy occasion type sense that we might use that phrase. Uh, Mark is saying that Jesus, that Jesus is operating in the place of the God of Israel, not merely as God's agent, but as God himself. God is returning to Israel. That's what Mark is saying. But he's, he's coming as a conquering king, but he's also coming as a shepherd, tenderly um, picking up his lambs, gathering his lambs in his arms and, and holding them close. So, so the good news um, is, is sort of inextricably linked between these two ideas, the forgiveness of Israel's sins, which is, in the first column, comfort, comfort my people, says God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her um, that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. So Isaiah is saying that the problem of sin that's been holding Israel down is about to be dealt with. It's about to be forgiveness of sins is about to wash over the land because God is coming back to Israel. So Mark is juxtaposing all of this and bringing Jesus right into the center of it and saying, this is God, he's come back. And what is his message? It's forgiveness of sins and it's, it's, um, it's political power, it's change. We might not put those two things in our minds together that often when we read Mark's gospel or when we even think about the word good news, when we try to define what gospel is. But for Mark, the return of the king and the wiping away of sin is a seamless message. So, and Jesus' words and his works always capture those twin elements. Political power led by God and inner renewal and, and cleansing and forgiveness, which brings us to our passage. Now, in the weeks to come, there's not going to be so much preliminary stuff. Um, we're going to be diving more into the passages themselves, but I just thought it was important to kind of to, to frame up things for us before we before we get into the actual meditation on this on this passage. So, with, what with the time that remains, I'm just going to read read the passage uh, a little bit like last week's lectio divina. Read it um, not for head knowledge, but read it in a sense that we might imaginatively enter into this text and that we might encounter Jesus there.
So wherever you are, whether you're here or whether you're at home, make yourself comfortable, still yourself, and I'll read the passage. <clears throat> when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Now, having dug through it, they let down the man on which let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So picture yourself, if you can, um, in this scene. What, what does the room look like as you imagine this scene? Is it a big room? Is it a small room? Is it daytime? Is it nighttime? Is it hot? Are you inside the room? Or perhaps you're craning your head through the window opening or you're squashed in by the door. Or maybe you're not standing at all. Maybe you're Maybe you're dangling in the air, floating down, coming to rest right in front of Jesus. Maybe you're peering over the edge of the roof, looking down at the scene underneath you, peering down at your friend laying at Jesus' feet. So what does Jesus look like? Picture his face if you can. What's the expression on his face? And what does it feel like when you hear him say, Son, your sins are forgiven? Carry on reading from the passage. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this fellow speak this way? It's blasphemy. He can forgive sins, but God alone. At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, 
take your mat and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Why does this fellow speak this way? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Has a question like that ever surfaced in your heart? Or have you ever really wondered if you could really be forgiven? Truly forgiven? Perhaps there's a part of your heart which finds it difficult to accept what you're hearing when you tell someone or when someone tells you that, that you're forgiven. And I know that uh, for me, there's certainly a part of my heart that struggles with that. And it's not so much the struggle to believe in the cross and the sacrifice of God and um, atonement and all that. I don't believe, it's not that I don't believe that he loves me, that he'd die for me. But what I do struggle to believe sometimes is whether he has the desire or the power to forgive me when I'm just so willfully disobedient or just plain disinterested in him when I when I continue to get tangled in the same old stuff over and over again, can he forgive me for that? Can he forgive me when I don't even have the wherewithal to ask or the desire to ask or the humility to seek his forgiveness? Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or stand up and take your mat and walk? Which is easier to believe in, God's power and his authority over creation, kingdom of God, or his desire to forgive us? good news of the gospel is that he offers us both. He offers us his forgiveness and he has the power to heal us.
So we can ruminate on that question today and perhaps the rest of the week, I think. But Lloyd, would you, uh, would you come and... I just invite you here to, to continue that conversation with Jesus. Don't let our schedule of things here on Sunday interrupt that process. I think sometimes we are a bit trite with the whole forgiveness thing, but enter into a conversation with Jesus now and through the worship and throughout the week and let him speak to you. Let him ask you a question about what's going on in your hearts.